0: Romans chapter one, starting verse number one. Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. When you meet somebody for the first time, you usually go through this uh, kind of awkward exchange. At least for me, it's awkward. I'm a, I'm a introvert by nature. I'm also, if you haven't noticed already, I'm socially awkward, I'm just a weird guy. And so it's always, I feel really uh, out- awkward and out of place when I meet people that I don't know for the first time. Uh, and so uh, you usually go through this process of, hey, what's your name? My name's Anthony, your name's uh, Bob. Hey, Bob, uh, You know, what kind of work do you do, Bob? And it's like, oh, I'm in the, the military, this branch of the military, I work at this bank over here. Awesome, do you enjoy the type of work that you do? Uh, and I found the majority of people, that the work that they do, don't enjoy it. And let me just tell you this, life's too short to do something that you hate. And so uh, I'm just going to throw that out to the side for a second. But uh, hey, do you like to have work you do? Where'd you grow up? You know, do you do you play sports? Do you have a fair sports team? What kind of hobbies do you have? Just trying to get to know each other. Uh, and so uh, sometimes the more that time that you spend with somebody, the more that you'll get to know them. And sometimes the more time that you spend with somebody, the more awkward that it gets, right? Uh, For me, uh, again, because I'm an introvert, because I'm super self-conscious, because I'm super insecure, one of the things that I absolutely hate is awkward silence. How many people are, you're those type of people that you're okay with awkward silence? Would you raise your hand? I'm okay with awkward silence, doesn't bother me at all. You people, I just, I don't get you. I want to be like you, but I just can't. And so, um, and so, because I always think to myself, like, as there's awkward silence that you're okay with, it doesn't bother you at all. I'm thinking, like, what are you thinking? Are you thinking, like, bad thoughts about me? Are you thinking, and I, I get into my own head, and it's just like, ah. So, uh, so I, I'm always trying to find something to say to fill the awkward silence. In. Paul, when he introduces himself, lays it out from the very beginning in this chapter. Here's who I am. Here's where my identity is. Here's what makes me Paul. Uh, and so uh, it kind of lays that out in verse number one. We're kind of going to parse through verse number one uh, this morning as we go through it. But I would hope for you, if anybody spends five to ten minutes with you in a, in a given instance, that they find out the most important things about you. If you spend five minutes talking to me, here's what you're going to learn. Uh, first of all, my name's Anthony. Second of all, uh, I have a wife who's incredible. I, I married way over my head. I've got four incredible children uh, that I love with every fiber of my being. Uh, and I love Jesus. Like, those things are going to come out in the first five minutes of those meetings because outside of that, I'm an incredibly unremarkable, super plain, super boring person. And the best part of me is Jesus and my family. And so, uh, you spend some time with me, that's what you're going to get. Paul, as he introduces himself, doesn't say anything about his hometown. Doesn't say where he's from. Uh, doesn't say what his hobbies are. Doesn't necessarily even say what his occupation is or has been in the past. He just lets you from, know from the very beginning, it's just kind of all about Jesus for me. As we look through this passage of Scripture this morning, a few things we want to take away from it. First of all, we see that Paul got a new name. If you remember, Paul used to be named Saul, and so here as he writes his letter here to the church at Rome, he refers to himself as Paul. Paul wasn't always Paul. Paul used to be Saul. And I remember as a kid, I don't know if I was directly taught this or I just came to this realization on my own and kind of took it and ran with it. Uh, But for a long time, I thought to myself, whenever Paul got saved, he went from Saul to being Paul. Paul. There was like this Damascus Road experience where he got saved, and then from that point forward, he automatically became known as Paul, that the old guy was Saul and the new guy was Paul. But as you imagine, as you begin to study the Bible, it kind of does away with all the preconceived notions that you have. It just kind of tells you it is what it is. And uh, Paul's name was not changed by Jesus on the Damascus Road. So, uh, again, uh, I don't know where I came up with that idea. I know many other people have thought that as well, that, hey, the day that Paul got saved, he got a new name, and he was no longer Saul. That was the old sinful guy, and the new guy here from here on out is Paul. That's, That's not a biblical idea. Makes a really good uh, a story to tell, but that's not exactly what happened here. Uh, we find Paul when he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul was a persecutor of the church. He hated Christians with every fiber of his being because Paul was a Pharisee. Uh, he was a Jew. Uh, he uh, followed the Jewish customs and religion. And when Jesus Christ came, Jesus Christ said, hey, I came to fulfill all of that, but I'm also starting a new covenant with Jews and Gentiles. Paul didn't like that, the Jews didn't like that, uh, because it meant that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, they rejected that. And so Paul didn't just, it didn't just rub him the wrong way, he made it his life work to find these Christians, uh, to put them in prison, or even put them to death. And so that was kind of his thing that he did, as he traveled from place to place, found Christians, saw to it that they were put in jail, that they lost their jobs, that they lost their homes, uh, that they were even killed in some cases, and he was consenting into the first death of the first martyr of the church. That would have been Stephen. So Paul was a rough dude, and he's on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. And when he uh, is on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, verse number 4 says, And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And so here we see in Acts chapter 9, Paul is on his way to persecute Christians. He falls on his knees before Jesus Christ and declares him as Lord And so here we see a conversion experience for Paul when Paul got saved or was born again. Now, Paul was blind and couldn't see and had to be led back to another man's house. And uh, so God came to a man by the name of Ananias and said, Ananias, you're going to go find Paul, actually, you're going to go and find Saul, and you're going to place your hand upon his shoulder and restore his sight. So later in Acts chapter 9, verse number 10, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, he said, Behold, I'm here, Lord. The Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth and hath seen a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. So God appears to Ananias and says, Go find this guy named Saul and I want you to go lay your hands on him and tell him that everything's okay and you'll restore his sight. And that's exactly what happened. Then we find over the next uh, four chapters in the book of Acts, Paul continues, or Saul rather, continues to learn and grow in his faith and uh, again still referred to as Saul. He gets uh, plugged into the church at Antioch. Antioch was a city where a group of people had gotten together and and he's there uh, serving Jesus in the local church at Antioch. And the Holy Ghost uh, impresses upon the people there and speaks to the, the pastors there. And says, separate from me, from you, Saul and Barnabas for the work where I've called them to. And so Acts chapter 13, uh, beginning of that, we see at the church at Antioch, Saul and Barnabas are separated now to go and plant churches elsewhere. This would be the beginning of missions as we know it, planting churches. So it's interesting that even when Paul, uh, Saul is being faithful to church and he's serving in the church there and is even called out by the Holy Spirit to go and plant churches, he's still referred to as Saul. So again, the idea that Saul was his sinful name and Paul is his redeemed name isn't necessarily a biblical idea. Again, I picked it up probably in Sunday school somewhere along the way, uh, but not uh, a biblical thought. So I just want to kind of lay that out there as we go here. It's interesting, though, the name Saul, though, was a Hebrew name with historic cultural connection to Israel's first king. The very first king of Israel was King Saul. The the children of Israel said, we want a king, we want to be like everybody else. And God says, you don't need a king, I'm your king. And they would not relent. And God says, fine, I'll give you a king if that's what you want. And he anointed Saul as the first king of Israel. Now, the name Saul would have actually been a, a, a notorious name in Jewish culture. It was a big name to give to someone because uh, Saul was a large man. Uh, he was a tough guy. He was a warrior. Uh, he was willing to go out and fight and throw down, and he had respect and honor of people. He was also the very first king that Israel had. So it was a historic name with deep cultural meaning. So even the name Saul itself would have been a really strong name uh, to give your boys in Jewish culture. But the name Paul, on the other hand, was not a Jewish Hebrew name. The name Paul was a Greek name which means little or small. Kind of a strange uh, choice of names, right? You've got this one big strapping, culturally rich, thick name like Saul, but then you choose to adopt a name in the Greek language that's not your your chosen people, your heritage, not your culture, of a guy that means little or small. Kind of interesting. Now, why did he choose that name? The Bible doesn't really tell us, but we can, uh, again, infer based on the character of who Paul is. That Paul was, we find in the uh, Acts chapter 13, again, uh, the beginning of the chapter, verse number two, uh, They, he said, the Holy Ghost is separate from me, Saul and Barnabas, for the work I've called them to. Then they go and plant churches amongst Gentiles or non-Jews. And from that point forward in the Bible, he's always referred to as Paul. And so it's kind of, Maybe when Paul decided to go to Gentiles, uh, he took, adopted a Greek name uh, to reach Gentiles better. I'm not really sure. But one of the things we can say with certainty about Paul, while the Bible isn't clear for the reason behind his name change, we can confidently say that Paul wanted less concern about himself and more concern about Jesus. That's a fact. So did Paul adopt the name Paul because he wanted to be smaller so that Jesus could be greater? I don't know if that's the reason behind his name change. It's it's possible. It's even plausible. But we know for a fact that Paul wanted less made of himself and more made of Jesus Christ. I think if we were to talk about greatest Christians in all of world history, you can't have a top five list without the Apostle Paul. You just can't. You got a guy who was taken from being a hater of the church to being greatly used by the church. You have a guy who was killing Christians who would later write the letters of greatest encouragement to Christians. Uh, You have a guy who God used to pin the majority of the letters of the New Testament. So much doctrine Paul gave us, so much understanding that he had uh, of Scripture. He planted churches all around the known world at the time, and everywhere he went, he was recognized as a leader of the church. He basically helped lay a foundation for the church in the ordaining of the new pastors that came in. I mean, you're talking about like top five Christians, the Apostle Paul would have to be up there. There's no, no list you can make that wouldn't include him. But I imagine if Paul was sitting in the back of the service today, he'd say, hey, guys, could you just get back to the Bible and quit talking about me? Uh, this, this whole talk of like top five Christians makes me really uncomfortable Because Paul would go on to say that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Paul would say, if you made a list of the top five worst sinners in the world, my name would be at the top. Please don't talk about how great I am. Because Paul didn't want his name to be great. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, that not I live, but Christ lives in me. Like, Paul's dead. The only thing that's alive in me is Jesus Christ. Paul would go on to say, I know in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Paul would say, there's nothing good about Paul. I just want Jesus to be lifted up. Paul would say in the beginning of uh, Philippians that he wanted Jesus Christ to be magnified, whether he be magnified in his life or in his death. So again, we see time and time and time again, Paul just wanted Jesus to be made great. And so, is that the reason for his name change? I don't know. It's plausible, possible. And I think it definitely lines up with the character of who Paul is for sure. But as we go on in verse number one, it says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. So it's important to note, first of all, this morning that Paul knew his place. If you're taking notes this morning, and I highly recommend that you do, Paul knew his place Next to that in parentheses, you should write the word slave. Verse number one says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, when the the Bible was written in the Greek language, uh, the New Testament, this letter he would write to the church at Rome was written in the Greek language. The word that's used there for servant, there's two Greek words that could be used uh, that are, are translated into the English for the word servant. One of those words is the word diakonos, which is where we get our word deacon. We'll cover this tonight at 5 o'clock as we take a look at the office of the deacon. The second word is the word doulos. Now, the word diakonos basically means a servant, uh, one who waits tables, uh, one who is standing by, ready to help in any way necessary. The other word doulos means a slave or a bond slave. So you can kind of think of a servant diakonos as one who kind of stands around like, hey, I- I'm willing to jump in. I'm willing to help wherever necessary. Hey, I'm willing to clean. I'm willing to move this. I'm willing to take care of that, this or that. That's the idea of a servant from that perspective. You might even think of a servant from that perspective as one standing by with a, a silver platter and a, a towel over their arm, ready to help, ready to serve. The other word doulos literally means slave. There's no other connotation for that word at all slave bond slave and then if there's 75 different english translations of the the bible probably only one or two of them use the word slave because that word slave just has so much negative connotation it's got way too much emotional baggage attached to it it's an ugly filthy dirty word based on our history with that word even when the King James would have been translated in the early 1600s, that word was just kind of off limits. It was just one of those things like, let's use the word servant instead because that fits a little bit better. But you can't get around the fact that the, this word, doulos, doesn't mean one who you know, uh, waits tables or one who's standing by to help. This means one who's the property of another. And in the Bible, there were two different types of slaves. There was the type of slave that you could purchase at a slave auction or something like that to be property to work in your house. That would be considered a slave. The second type of slave was known as a bond slave. This is the type of slavery that when you got yourself into debt and you could not pay your bills, you would place yourself under the authority of the one whom you owed to basically work off your debt. Now, it's interesting to know that in Jewish culture, that according to the Old Testament, that slaves had to be let go every seven years. You might not know this, but this is a fascinating concept. Did you know that in the United States, when you have debt that's on your record and it needs to be discharged, it can be discharged every how many years? Anybody know? Every seven years. It's a biblical idea. Whatever debt you have gets wiped off every seven years. So these bond slaves at the end of their seven years could be set free. Okay, just stay with me for a second. But they could choose if they wanted to, if they loved their master, if they had become ingrained as part of the family that they served, they could choose to willingly, voluntarily stay with their master. And if they did that, the master would, would then take them and take their ear and put it on the, the doorpost and poke a hole through their ear, proving this person was property. They're free to leave, but they've chosen to stay of their own volition. I say all that to say, Paul identified himself as a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Was he a purchased possession? Yes, he was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Did he owe a debt that he could never possibly repay? Absolutely no doubt about it. Did he find that he loved his master and desired nothing more in life than to serve him forever? Absolutely no doubt about it. So when Paul says he's a servant of Christ, it doesn't just mean he's willing to do whatever uh, Jesus wants him to do. He's saying, I place myself under bondage to my master, which is Jesus. Now, that's a really big deal because you and I are actually called to be slaves to Christ as well. We're called to be slaves. It's interesting, sometimes people think to themselves, well, I don't want to be a, a slave to anybody. I want to do my own thing. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. It really doesn't. You want, if you're going to be in bondage, trust me, I can tell you the master that you want to serve in his name is Jesus Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse number 10, he said, For for, do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant. That word, servant, do loss of Christ. Paul says, I got a choice. I can either please man or I can be a slave to Christ. I have to pick a side. And please understand, if I choose to be a slave to Jesus, I cannot please man in this world. And if I choose that I want to please man in this world, I cannot please Jesus. You have to pick a side. And that's the frustrating thing for me as a pastor is to see so many Christians who are wishy-washy in their faith. Oh, I'll serve my sin today, and I might serve Jesus tomorrow, and I might serve my sin today, and I might serve Jesus tomorrow. Please understand, you can't pick and choose sides like that. you got to pick one or the other. You can't waffle back and forth. (laughs) James was so kind to tell us that a double-minded man is unstable in how many ways? All of his ways, yeah. Let me just tell you this. If you're trying to walk with the world and walk with Jesus at the same time, let me just tell you this. Your whole life will be in chaos. Everything. Because a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. So again, God is calling you and I as his children. If you're a child of God, he's calling you to take it one step further and be in full submission to the authority of Christ and allow Christ to be your master you see, slaves have no rights or wills of their own. Slaves don't determine what time they get up in the morning. Oh, I think I might sleep in today. Get started on work a little bit later. No, you get up when you're told to get up. Oh, I think I might put around the house for a little bit, maybe grab some lunch and uh, see if there's anything to do out there today. No, you get up and you work. You know why? Because you don't have the opportunity to determine your own will your will is that of your master the slaves biblical times didn't have the right to own property they couldn't have anything that was theirs anything that they had was given to them by the master and again if you want to look at that the bible says that you and I own nothing that was not given to us by our father The Bible tells us that every good and every perfect gift cometh from the Father which is above, that every good thing that I have in my life, whether it's the shirt on my back, whether it's the shoes on my feet, the car that I drive, or $5 in my wallet, every single bit of that was given to me by my Father. I I don't own anything. And so here's the, the awesome thing about this. The book of Philippians tells us about Jesus Christ. Jesus thought it not robbery to be made equal with God. What that means is he didn't think it was something that he didn't have the right to take. So Jesus considered himself equal with God, but here's what it said. He took upon himself the form of a servant. You want to guess what that Greek word was there? Doulos. Jesus Christ was willing to become a slave, and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so Jesus, who is God in the flesh, purposely chose to become a slave to his Father. Kind of interesting. If you read through the book of John, uh, John chapter uh, 5, verse number 30, here's what Jesus says. Get this. I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. John 5.30 again, I can of my own will do nothing. Here's what Jesus is saying. I can't do anything. Now again, we need to stop for just a second. Jesus Christ never stopped being God. Jesus was 100% God in the flesh. He could have done anything that he wanted to do. But here's what he said. I can't do anything of my own will because I'm here only to do the will of the Father which sent me. So get this, Jesus placed himself under submission of authority to his Father. So here's the question I have. If Jesus can be a slave, why can't you and I? Why are you and I so proud of ourselves? we got our chest out, I don't listen to nobody, I just do my own thing, man. Wait a minute. Here's what Jesus says. The servant is not above his master. And again, when you read the Bible, you should get an app like the Uversion app or something like that. You can usually hold on a word and it'll tell you the Greek word that's used for it or something like that. The word doulos is used so many times in the place of the word servant. We could literally take the word slave and put it in its place. Jesus is the slave not above his master. If Jesus was willing to submit to the Father, how much more should you and I be willing to submit to the Father? Jesus says in John chapter six, verse number 38, for I came down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him that sent me. Jesus saith unto them, my meat is to do the will of them that sent me and to finish his word, John chapter 4, verse 34. So again, you and I somewhere along the way got the idea that it was okay for us to do our own thing, to go our own way, and to be our own boss. We miscalculated, we misunderstood. We were never meant to be in charge of anything. When I wake up in the morning, it's what would the Father have me do? When I make a decision in life, it's what would the Father have me do? And we set our kids up for failure when we ask them questions from a very young age. Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do? What do you think would be fun? We should ask a better question. What do you think God wants you to do with your life when you grow up? Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what my kids think, it doesn't matter what God thinks. Like, oh, yeah, that's good for my kids. That's not good for your kids, it's good for you. Like, oh, I think I might do this. I think I might do that. What does God want you to do? Have you ever thought about that for a second? And again, we have to do the will of the Father. You know why? Because we're placed under authority. One of the best decisions Angela and I ever made in our entire life was tw- probably 22 years ago. We made a decision that from there on out, whatever God told us to do, we were just going to do it. No questions asked. No how, no why, no where. Whatever God says, just going to do it. And we have found that God always blesses obedience. Isn't that crazy? God just wants to use somebody. And so here we see that God says, Paul says, I am a slave to Jesus Christ. And again, you might say, well, I want to be free. I don't want to be a slave to anybody. You need to understand you will always be in slavery because we're either slaves to Jesus or slaves to our sin, but we're never free to ourselves, like ever. So again, the man who says, I'm not willing to submit to Christ because I just want to go out and, and party and have fun. You're a slave to alcohol. You're a slave to your carnal desires. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to follow Jesus because that means that, that I, you know, can't have sex with my girlfriend. You are a slave to your sexual immorality. You are not free. You never have been free. You're a slave to your sin. And so sometimes people say, "Well, I just want, I don't want to. I don't want to become a Christian because then I'll lose my freedom." Friend, you already lost your freedom. I'm trying to point you to the freedom that's found in Christ. Because the Bible says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. That's the good stuff that your heart craves. Your heart doesn't crave to go out on a Saturday night and wake up a Sunday morning with a, a bag full of regret. That's not what your heart craves. And you know as well as I do, that's not freedom. Freedom. And so you can either be a slave to Christ or you can be a slave to your sin. Turn your Bibles over to Romans chapter 6 if you would. I am uh, greatly anticipating the day that we get to preach to Romans chapter 6. <laughs> i got five chapters to finish before we get there, but it's going to be good, okay? <clears throat> but Romans chapter 6, verse number 16, take a look at what that says. Romans chapter 6, verse number 16, know you not that whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey. Now again, that word servant, doulos, could be used as slave. So whom you yield yourselves servants, slaves to obey, his slaves you will be who you obey, whether sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. So you got a choice. I can choose to be a slave to my sin, or I can choose to be a slave to righteousness. Well, yeah, I just want to be free to myself. That wasn't one of your options. <laughs> Take your kids for like shave ice or something like that or ice cream. It's just like, okay, sweetie, they got chocolate or vanilla. What do you want? Ooh, I totally want strawberry. Yeah, that wasn't an option. But I really want it. I don't care what she wants. It's not an option. Chocolate or vanilla. Ooh, I don't know. I'll get you swirl. Mm, Do they have Rocky Road? That wasn't an option. (laughs) And so, so many times people are like, well, I just want to be free to myself. That's not an option here. Do you want to serve your sin or do you want to serve Jesus? Those are the only two options. One will fill you with a lifetime of regret, misery, and destruction, and the other one is actually freedom and the real life. Take your pick. Totally up to you. But notice verse number 16 says, you have to yield. This is a choice that only you can make. I can't make it for you. I wish I could. I've seen so many people blow their lives up with sin. I wish I could just say, like, no, you're not going to do that. Just, like, turn them around and just go the opposite direction. Wouldn't that be nice? Can't do it. You've got to choose for yourself. And so you can choose to either be a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. As we go through, uh, turn back to Romans chapter 1, if you would, Romans chapter 1, verse number 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Paul's identification as an apostle in this letter was to convey his authority in addressing the church. Now, when it comes to Paul writing, he was letting them know, like, hey, it's not Paul. I'm a buddy that goes to church over in Corinth. Hey, what's up, fellas? It's like, hey, I'm Paul, and I'm writing you with apostolic authority. I am one who has walked with Christ and been taught by Christ Himself, and I'm telling you how things should be. It was a declaration of authority on Paul's behalf. Peter, as he writes Second Peter chapter number three, verse number one, he says, "This second epistle, beloved, I now write to you." in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken to you before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Paul's saying, hey, Peter saying, I'm writing to you to let you know that I'm writing you based on the authority of the prophets of the Old Testament and what us as the apostles in the New Testament are saying. And so Paul's telling us in this case here, I'm writing as Paul, not your buddy or your brother in Christ. I'm writing to you as a slave in Christ, as an apostle chosen by Jesus himself. That's a big deal. And again, we don't have time to get into canonicity today. But again, if you want to write, if you're taking notes, write down canonicity on the side. Any books of the Bible that would be considered New Testament canon as part of the New Testament had to be written by an apostle or someone with a close association with an apostle. So again, that's one of the, 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 the critical components of whether or not we include this in the Bible or not. So again, somebody who is disconnected from the apostles or disconnected from Jesus would not have the authority to write New Testament books. You have somebody like Luke who traveled with the apostle Paul and was a close companion of his, uh, wrote the book of Acts, wrote the book of Luke from firsthand witness accounts from the, from the book of Luke. And so again, Paul, as he writes, he's telling them this is authority. Now, this is really important that we get this as we go through this. So we don't miss this. There's no biblical qualifications given for apostles. There's no succession plan outlined in the scripture. And there are no apostles identified after Paul. And the apostles ceased to exist upon the death of the 14. Okay? Some of you were with me until we got to that 14. You're like, wait, what? Okay, stick with me, okay? Jesus told chose 12 apostles, right? Now, apostles are different from disciples. Sometimes people say the 12 disciples. Yeah, the 12 apostles were disciples, but Jesus had hundreds, if not thousands, of committed followers that were disciples, but he had 12 apostles, okay? One of them killed himself, Judas. There's now 11. They chose another one, Acts chapter 1, Matthias. That's now 13. Then the apostle Paul was chosen. He says an apostle born out of due time, So Paul would have been the 14th apostle. After Paul, we never see any more apostles being chosen. As apostles die, they don't get replaced. They're just dead. Again, as we go through the book of Acts, we see uh, James, uh, the brother of John, was put to death. He died. They didn't choose another apostle after that. They just continued on. Because the apostles weren't supposed to be an office for today's church. They were a foundation, just like the Old Testament prophets and the apostles developed the foundation of the church. Now we build upon the church with saved, baptized believers like you and I. That's how the church goes forward from here. And again, we'll take a look tonight uh, and next week, the office of the deacon, the office of the pastor, and how those uh, fit into church leadership and ecclesiology. But let me say the, the the eight o'clock service. For those of you that don't know, we have an eight o'clock service. Uh, that's the one where I kind of get warmed up a little bit and so. Um, but the, here's also the thing to know about the eight o'clock service. I have a hard cut off that I have to be done by ten o'clock. The ten o'clock service, I don't have a hard cut off, and so. Um, just say, just saying, putting that out there for you. Uh, but. <laughs> I said this at the 8 o'clock service, I said, I'm 99 with probably 900 nines on the end of it, percent sure. And then I stopped and I said, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, I'm a 100% sure that any church that claims to have an apostle on their staff is 100% a false teaching church. 100%. Because when somebody claims the authority of apostle, I just got a lot of questions, Okay, First Peter chapter. I'm sorry, First Timothy chapter three, Titus chapter one gives us the qualifications of the pastors and the deacons. What are the qualifications of the apostles? Like, can apostles be married? Uh, can po- apostles, you know, uh, be guys that cause problems or don't have a great testimony? Or like, who chooses the apostles? Like, how do you select the apostles? Should we? How many apostles do we need worldwide? Do we need to keep the number at twelve? If so, are there only twelve apostles in the whole world for seven and a half billion people? If an apostle dies, how do we replace him? Do we go in a room? Do we send up smoke through a chimney? I mean, like, how do we select them? I don't know. You know why? Because that was never intended to be an office that continued in the church. It was there for a specific time for people that walked personally with Jesus. And when that was done, it was done. So be wary of churches that say, oh, Apostle Stephen's going to preach to us tonight, or uh, Apostle Sally's going to come and, and bring a fresh vision from God. Red flags all over the place, okay? Uh, also, uh, churches that would consider themselves apostolic generally would place emphasis on supernatural sign gifts, uh, mystical things like telling the future, or speaking words of prophecy over you, saying, oh, when I look at you, I see the number six, and it means something uh, that's coming in six days for you, and, and when it's six days your increase will be sixfold and all this other mystical new age nonsense and i mean i'm just telling you there's some crazy stuff out there there's there's like legitimately youtube channels of apostles saying like oh every week i travel to the throne room of god and i go up there and i sit down and pull up a stool and talk with god and last week i was there and jesus was giving a haircut to the angels and it was just a blessed time and you're like Does anybody that's read two pages of the Bible believe any of this nonsense? Like, where does this stuff come from? And you find these people have hundreds of thousands of followers on YouTube, and you read through the comments. I'm thinking the comments are going to be funny. People are like, amen, blessed, thanks for letting us know what's taking place in the throne room. And, you know, do they use a number two guard or a number three guard when they cut hairs? Do they use golden scissors when they cut the... What is wrong with people? But again, let me just tell you this. All that desire to chase after extra biblical revelation just says God's word isn't enough. We need dreams. We need visions. We need wonders. We need somebody to tell us the future. We need to tell people our special numbers that are chosen and blessed by God for us. No, you just need the word of God. You just need the Bible. God has revealed himself to mankind through his word, through his son. That's it. Sometimes people say, oh, pastor, would you speak a word of prophecy over our family? I'm not sure what you mean by that, but I'd be happy to pray for you and your family, that God would bless you and keep you and that uh, would give you his favor and his blessing and that you would follow him all the days of your life. I can do that. If you're asking me to look into Jesus' crystal ball and tell you the future, that's not a thing and it's never been a thing. So, again, when Paul writes and says, Paul, an apostle, he's giving his credentials that he was chosen by Christ himself, that he has the authority to speak to the church in an authoritative manner. Next we see in this passage that Paul followed the process. So Paul knew his place. Quote in uh, uh, parentheses there, you got slave. Paul followed the process. In parentheses, out to the side, write the word separation. Paul... A servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. You see, to do a work in your life, God has to go through, and he requires from you a process of separation. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Behold, all things are past, old things are passed away, excuse me. Old things are passed away, and all things are become new. That's a process of separation. Mind you, someone who just comes to church, gets a warm, fuzzy feeling in their, their chest, prays a prayer, and then goes back to their sin and never changes, has not experienced true biblical conversion. Now again, I'm not the arbiter as far as who's saved and who's not saved, but here's what I know. The Bible says that when you become a child of God, there will be change that takes place in your life where you separate from sin. You cannot just go to church and pray a prayer and come back down and lay down in the filth and mire and cesspool of your sin and just say, wow, that was a great experience. I'm just forgiven. No. There has to become a separation process. Now, the separation process is what the Bible calls sanctification. And so when we take a look at separation, we're always separated from someone or something to someone or something. So you think about that for a second. I'm separating myself from sin. Okay, to what? To Jesus Christ. Get this, okay? You gotta understand this. If Jesus Christ is over here, My sin is over here, okay? You cannot pursue both at the same time. They're on opposite ends of the spectrum. To pursue Jesus Christ, I have to turn my back on my sin to pursue Jesus. And to chase after my sin, I have to turn my back on Jesus Christ. There's no two ways about that. So the Christian who wants to dabble in sin, the only way that you can dabble in sin is to turn your back on Christ. And the Bible says you're to be separated from your sin and separated to Christ. So again, it grieves my heart as a pastor when I see people that are so comfortable over here in their sin. It's not that big of a deal. You know, I mean, it's not like I'm killing people or something you're killing yourself the bible says lust when it's conceived brings forth sin and sin when it's done brings forth what death (laughs) you're 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 walking death sentence is what you are well i know but i'm not bad at so and so no 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 it's not a matter of being better or worse than anybody else it's a matter of to be in your sin you have to have left christ Now, again, I'm not talking about you make mistakes. I'm not talking about somebody cuts you off in traffic and you grip the steering wheel and you think ugly thoughts about it. That's not what I'm talking about. That's just part of our human sin nature that's not fully submitted to Christ yet, and we need to work on stuff like that. I'm not making an excuse for that. That's wrong, wrong, wrong. I'm talking about when we become so comfortable with our sin that it's just like, hey, I've always struggled with this, and I'll always struggle with it. You know, I've always struggled with negative thoughts about other people, and I just always will. I've always been a gossip, and that's just what I do, and I, I just always deal with it. You know I like to drink, I always have. What's the big deal? You know? Now we're beginning to make excuses for our sin. The big deal is to connect to your sin. you have to disconnect from Christ. That's a problem. And so when we talk about being separate, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 14, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with the temple of idols? Here's the thing I love about uh, Paul as he writes in 2 Corinthians here. Everything's really black and white, isn't it? What fellowship, what friendship do Christians have with pagans? What do we have in common exactly? What commonality, what fellowship, what community is there light with darkness? That's why people are like, what do you think about the gray areas of the Bible? I don't see a lot of gray when I read the Bible. I don't. I see it very black and white. It's pretty straightforward what we're supposed to do. Oh, no, but sometimes I just want to... That's part of the problem. Sometimes you just want to, and you were supposed to die to Christ. Oh, no, but sometimes I think... The problem is that you thought. (laughs) Right? Slaves don't think for themselves. They just do what they're told. Again, this comes back to being fully submitted to Christ. When I'm fully submitted to Christ, of course I want to be separated from Christ. Of course I don't want to live in the mess and filth and mire that is this world. Of course I want to be separated to Christ if I'm submitted to Him. But you see, if I'm not submitted to Christ, I still want to dabble in my sin. I have to disconnect from Christ. And here's the thing that grinds my gears, is that so many Christians are so willing to disconnect from Christ, to chase after their sin, because they don't see the real value that's found in Christ. That hurts. Like, if you saw Jesus for what he was, you would see your, your sin as filth, vomit, disgusting. But so many times you're just like, oh, I remember back when I was in college, and it was just so fun back then, so carefree. No, you don't. You remember in the good parts. You don't remember. I love what the Bible says. What things that you did in the past that, that caused you to be ashamed are you proud of now? Did you forget the way that you hurt the name of Christ? Did you forget the heartache that your sin brought you? Did you forget all the regret and the shame and the guilt? There wasn't good times there. There was a lot of things that disappointed your father. Let's just get a right perspective. Let me just tell you this. If you submit yourself to Christ and you leave your sin behind, you're not giving up anything to follow Christ. You're jettisoning what, what the writer of Hebrews calls the extra weight that's just slowing you down. You get to be free from that. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 and says, uh, For the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them, and I will walk in them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. I'll be a father unto you. You'll be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Cuts says, come out from the garbage of the world and I'll take care of you. And again, that's why we're talking about on Sunday night the, the Greek word ekklesia, where we get our word ecclesiology, which is a study of the church. Literally means a called out assembly. People that were taken out of something and placed into something else. Were taken out of the world and placed into the body of Christ, the family of God. It's like, what a gift to be separated. Holiness is separation from sin to God. That's what holiness is. Holiness, sanctification. This is a lifelong process that we're on. It's not going to happen overnight. It's work. It's hard. The the flesh does not want to die under any circumstances whatsoever. But again, Romans 6.22, Now being made free from sin and become servants of God, you have fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life the separation work that God wants to do in your life and my life is part of our life's journey. I love what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse number 15. He says, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by grace. He said, well, Paul wasn't a follower of Jesus until later on in life. Yeah, but God had already set him on a path, already put him on a trajectory towards separation for the gospel work from the time he was, before he was born. That's again why we as Bible-believing Christians can put it this way, you cannot believe the Bible and come up with any other solution towards life than pro-life. You just can't. And so that's why, again, our Mother's Day offering, we're gonna take a special offering for a place for women, uh, which is a pregnancy crisis center in YPO that takes every woman with an unwanted or unplanned pregnancy, sits them down, shares with them the gospel, encourages them to keep their child or put together a placement plan for their child. Because life is that important. Because God has a plan for every one of those kids. Every single one of them. He called Paul from his mother's womb. That's how big of a deal it was for him. And so again, this journey that you're on started from the day that you were born until now and you continue on that journey. And you might say, I know, but there were years of my life that I didn't walk with Christ that I'm embarrassed by. We're just looking forward from here. That was part of your journey that brought you to today to be fully submitted and surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, fully submitted to his word, willing to be separated unto the work that he's called you to. It's just part of the journey. And it's okay. We're not looking backwards at things that we coulda, shoulda, woulda. We're looking forward to the things that I am in Christ. Final thought here this morning: Paul was crystal clear on his purpose. Put out to the side in parentheses, the gospel. That was his purpose. So he knew his place. He was a servant. He knew the process, separation, and now he knows his purpose, which is the gospel. The gospel is the best news that anybody will ever hear in their entire lifetime. And if you hear nothing else other than what I'm getting ready to say today, hear this. You and I have broken God's law not once or twice, but time and time again, it's inherent in our nature to sin and rebel against God. Our sin has a price that must be paid. That price is death and hell is the only way that you and I can even up the score with God for what we owe him. And here's the worst part about it. I deserve to go to hell because I've sinned against God. But God loves you and God loves me so much that he was willing to send his son Jesus to die on our behalf. 5 verse number 8 but God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us while we were yet sinners Christ died for us Jesus died in my place he died in your place because he loves you but it requires a choice on your part I can't do it for you you have to be willing to come to Jesus by faith in repentance I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God I believe that he died for my sins I believe that he's the only way to heaven and I'm asking him to forgive me and save me from my sins. Friend, if you would believe that and confess that today, today you could be saved. Today you can be born again. Now, I'm not talking about what's happened in the past. I'm not talking about getting baptized or being religious or going to church a lot. I'm talking about being born again by the Spirit of God. It's the only way that you will make it to heaven. And friend, if you're trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ today, you're going to miss heaven by a mile, and you'll split hell wide open. Jesus Christ is the only hope that you have for this life and the next. That story of what Jesus Christ has done for you is the gospel. That's the gas in the tank for the engine that runs the Christian life and that runs Jesus' church. Without the gospel, we're out of gas. We got nowhere to go. We're stranded. We're stuck. Without the gospel, we have no hope. Without the gospel, we got no message. Without the gospel, we got no mission. Without the gospel, we should just all go home which again blows my mind how you can have so many quote churches today that are devoid of the gospel, sin, repentance, faith, never mentioned. The question is, what are you talking about exactly? I remember the church that I grew up in would have like, I forget what it was called, Friend Sunday or something like that, where the idea was that you brought a friend on this Sunday and the pastor on that Sunday would preach the gospel. And so if you had somebody that you knew that didn't know Jesus, bring them on Friend Sunday, and they would hear the gospel on that Sunday. And so <laughs> trying to find somebody who doesn't go to church in western Kentucky is about impossible, right? And we tried. We tried hard. I mean, everybody there goes to church somewhere, went to church somewhere, or church hops or church skips or something. And so, but we would try really hard to find somebody that didn't know Jesus and invite them to church. And, and that Sunday, without fail, they'd preach a message about the gospel, I remember growing up as, as a kid thinking to myself, that's really good. I mean, one Sunday a year, they preach the gospel. And if you need to get saved, you get get saved. And then as I got older and I got mature in my faith, I thought to myself, what exactly was he preaching the other 51 Sundays of the year? Like, that's really confusing. And I thought to myself, what if somebody came the Sunday after Friend Sunday and didn't know Jesus? Well, you gotta wait till next year. We'll talk about the gospel then. Until then, we'll just tell you some good Bible stories. What the world? Here's what Paul says. Romans one16 sixteen. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first, then also to the Greek. Like, get this. Okay, I'm mean, gonna lay this out. This is why the gospel is so important for us. The gospel, Romans 1.16, is the power of God. Okay, stay with me. If you take the gospel out of the church, you now have no power you take the gospel out of the life of a Christian, you now have no power. It's everything to us. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the sins of mankind is the greatest story ever told and it has to be our number one priority. And here's the thing for those of us that have been saved or born again. You didn't just need the gospel the day you got saved. You needed the gospel this morning too. When you sin against God, that same saving power that was found in the blood of the cross is still available to you and it's still powerful today to cover your sin completely. I didn't just need the gospel when I was nine and got saved. I needed the gospel this morning. I'm going to need the gospel tomorrow. And every person that I meet needs to hear the gospel. Every one of them. Every one of them. And so Paul knew his purpose. Man, my purpose is the gospel. We have to be all about the gospel. And if we're not about bringing people to Jesus. We're not about putting our sin to death. We're not about living in the victory that's provided by the empty tomb. Friend, we don't have a leg to stand on. we got nothing. And so Paul said, here's the purpose of my life. I'm separated unto the gospel of God. The gospel also proves that God always keeps his promises. You see in verse number two here, which he had promised afore by his prophets concerning in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel is just proof that if God says he's going to do something, you can, you can bank on it. You can guarantee it's going to happen. It's going to come to pass. <laughs> I remember one time I had an appointment with somebody, and uh, I was waiting out front on the sidewalk for him. And somebody said, oh, you got an appointment? I said, yeah, I got an appointment with so-and-so. They're like, huh, good luck if he shows up. What? Oh, yeah, he's notorious for making appointments and never showing up or showing up 30 minutes later, an hour late. And I thought to myself, Well, that's a terrible testimony to have. But I'm sure that's not the case. It would make an appointment with the pastor. I'm like, stand the pastor upright. Here I am standing on the sidewalk 45 minutes later waiting for somebody. It's like, wow, okay. There's people (laughs) like that that when they say something, everybody's just like, yeah, they said it. But whether or not it actually happens, is like 50-50. If God said it, 100% sure it's going to come to pass. Always. The gospel is proof of that. The Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, told us that Jesus was coming and he came. Isaiah prophesied in chapter 53 exactly how he would die, and it's precisely what happened. David prophesied in the book of Psalms how Christ would die. It's precisely how it happened. If God says you can take it to the bank, it's good, and the gospel is proof of that. Titus tells us in Titus chapter 1, verse number 2, in hope of eternal life, which God cannot who cannot lie promised before the world began. And the gospel tells of Jesus' power over sin, death, and the grave. Verse number four, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of his holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Take a look at verse number four there. He, according to, I'm sorry, and declared to be the Son of God with power. He didn't just say, hey guys, I'm the Son of God, <laughs> No, he declared it. Why? Not by saying he was the Son of God, but by proving that he was the Son of God. How did he do that? By his death, burial, and resurrection. He proved with power that he is the Son of God. By what? By the spirit of his holiness, his Holy Spirit, and by the power that was found where? In his resurrection, according to verse number four. So here we see that the gospel that Paul has separated himself unto the purpose for which he's given his life is all the power that he needs to make it through this life and the next. So Paul recognized, hey guys, I'm Paul. (laughs) Paul with a little Paul, right? I'm just a slave of Jesus Christ. I've got authority. I can speak with authority because I've been chosen by Jesus Christ himself to deliver this message to you. But I want you to know that my whole life, I was taken from a life of sin, a life of self serving, a a life of even false religion. And I've been separated into the best news you'll ever hear in your entire life that I built my life upon. It's called the gospel. And so when we look at how Paul was used, Paul wasn't used because he was super talented. Paul said, as he wrote to the, I believe it was uh, the churches at Galatia. He says to them, I'm not writing you with flowery speech and big words. I'm writing to you with the word of God. I want you to take hope today that God can use you. You know what you need to do? You need to be submitted to being a slave to Christ. And you need to be separated from this world and from your sin to Jesus Christ. And God can use that. I can use anybody. I love the fact that as we read through the scriptures, God uses average, ordinary people to accomplish his work. God uses average, ordinary objects to accomplish the supernatural. I love the story of Moses. When God comes to Moses, he talks to him. He says, hey, I need you to go lead the children of Israel out of Egypt into the land that I promised. And he's like, yeah, I can't. And God's like, okay, uh, like I said, uh, go and lead them out. begins to give excuses. And God says, what's in your hand? And he says, a rod, a stick, right? A stick, like being like a broom handle. It wasn't anything special. It was just a stick. What do you got in your hand? A stick. Throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground, and it became a snake. I would have been out. Like God would be like, come back. He would be like, no. <laughs> pick it up. No. <laughs> like, I'm gone, gone, gone. I would, have, I would have been dead, and I got to heaven, and God was like, what are you doing? It's like It was a snake. I had to die. Uh, so Anyway, he picked it up. He picks it back up. He turns it back into a stick. Okay, God, just now go do what I told you to do. Great. The plagues happen. Uh, Pharaoh finally says, "Go." Takes the children of Israel, probably a, a million plus Jews, being led out of captivity by Moses. He gets to the Red Sea, and the, the Egyptian army is coming back behind him, breathing down his neck. And God says, um, "Go up to the Red Sea and part it." And he stood there with what? A stick. Only wasn't called a stick this time. If you read the Exodus account, it's called. The rod of God. <laughs> and think, it wasn't Moses' stick anymore. That's God's stick. What does God's stick do? Oh, God's stick can part the Red Sea. Just a stick. Nothing special about it, but it was God's stick. What can God do with somebody like you? Who, granted, is a little bit more gifted than a stick, right? Some of you. Some of you a little bit less gifted than a stick but imagine what god could do with your life if you would just say i believe and i'm willing to walk that for the rest of my life that when i begin to look over my shoulder back at my sin i just need to remember what i've been delivered from and keep pushing towards jesus every single day what could god do with that i'm telling you he could do something supernatural. most important thing in the world if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved Do not walk out those double doors unless you know for sure that your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home. We can have a guy sit down with a guy, a lady sit down with a lady and show you from the scriptures, not how to join our church, not how to do religious stuff, but how to know for sure your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home. For those of us that are saved, this is our week to live as slaves to Christ separated to the gospel. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church Podcast.